Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Alleluia. Amen. It's an astonishing thing in the aftermath of a death. The platitudes begin right away, don't they? We've all heard them. Someone will say, well, they're in a better place now. Or they just wanted to spend their birthday or Christmas or their anniversary in heaven. They say time heals all wounds. At least they were reunited with those who have gone before. And my least favorite ever, God needed another angel. Now I get the good intentions behind all of these words. I really do. But the platitudes that we say in moments like this are more for us, more for the people who are saying them than for those who are grieving. However well-intentioned, they push comfort before it's time. They serve as a subtle way of negating, minimizing the very real grief that people feel at the loss of a loved one. For as firmly as we may believe that those who die find themselves with God, that there is a life beyond this one, even a bodily resurrection, as strong as our faith in all of that might be, grief is still an appropriate and a necessary emotion as we adapt ourselves to a world that is forever changed by the absence of those whom we have loved and lost. And yet the platitudes are commonplace. They fall easily from our mouths in moments when we don't have other words. They repeat themselves endlessly from every greeting card shelf in every store until we find them normal, even acceptable. But they are all just signs of our discomfort with death and with grief. As we live in a culture that tells us to just move on, get over it distract ourselves as though grief and loss were just a momentary frustration or a bad mood that can be cured with a long walk. But it isn't true. And in fact, it can be very harmful. When we push grief away, when we refuse each other and ourselves that time of mourning, we literally tear ourselves apart. When being in community means having to put on a happy face, having to pretend that we are okay when we aren't, so as not to make the people around us uncomfortable, or because we've been taught that we should be happy for the one who died, and the grieving is selfish and faithless and, you know, dramatic. In those moments, when we find ourselves required to bring only a piece of ourselves into our communities, when we have to hide the reality that lives within us, the deep feeling, the pain of loss, we split ourselves, we tear ourselves, we break ourselves, and then we get stuck. As that hidden part of ourselves, that pain, that loss that we cannot bring out into the open gets squished down, tucked away, ignored, until it roots itself down in that dark space within us 
and it grows up into a trauma. Keeping us locked into that moment, into that loss, into that grief, unable to leave it. The inability to express our grief and our pain and our loss breaks us apart into our public and our private selves, into pieces that are in pain and pieces that refuse to acknowledge that that pain exists. Although grief is a universal experience, I can say with certainty that there is not a person here today who has not ever experienced grief. It's still not something we do well. And so the grieving are isolated from communities that do not have mourning rituals in a culture that just wants us to get over it. We are cut off from the healing that happens when our joy and our sorrow are honored equally, when we do not have to hide ourselves in order to be accepted. Because the thing about grief is that it changes us irrevocably. The fact of having lost someone we love changes us in ways that we cannot get back. Grief forces us to step into a new world for which we are never prepared. It forces us to learn new ways of living, of being, of understanding, ways that encompass both the pain and the joy of our new life. And we only move into that new world whole if our grief is allowed to come with us. If our pain is honored as holy by a community that is more invested in our healing than in the comfort of pretending that we can avoid the discomfort of grief. Jesus, upon hearing that his friend Lazarus had died, Lazarus whom he loved, Jesus makes his way to Bethany. It seems terrible to us that Jesus appears to be making an object lesson of this death. But really, the gospel writer's point is not to make Jesus a jerk, but to drive home the idea that Lazarus is really, truly, and completely dead. He is not mostly dead, he is all dead, as the princess bride would say. And just as an aside, Jesus using his friend as an object lesson is as cruel as the idea that God takes human lives in order to increase the angel chorus, but I digress. With Lazarus truly dead, washed and anointed and in the tomb for four whole days, his sister's grief comes pouring out. You can hear them in the text, wailing their lament, flinging their anger, especially at Jesus when he finally arrives. Jesus, the great healer, the one whom they have trusted and by whom they feel betrayed. Martha runs out to greet Jesus desperate, in denial, to the point of bargaining, as we sometimes do in grief. You hear it underneath her words, maybe this isn't really death, maybe this isn't really real, maybe, maybe, maybe she will wake up and it will all have been a bad dream. Mary, on the other hand, is just hurting. The pain within her is too big, it is too much, and she blames Jesus, who could have spared her, could have spared Lazarus, and it just all comes pouring out to the point where she cannot even stand anymore. Whereas Martha greets Jesus almost calmly, Mary collapses at his feet, 
And the incredible thing is that he seems to be suffering as much as she is. In the face of the sisters' deep and perfectly normal grief, given everything they have just experienced, in the presence of all who have come to join them in mourning, Jesus himself weeps, finds himself with tears flowing down his face. He knows what is going to happen. He knows that Lazarus will be raised from death, real, stinking, putrid death. Jesus knows this perfectly well, better than anyone who's there. But he meets the grief of these people with empathy, with compassion, as the deep expression of the love in which Lazarus continues to be held. For what is grief, if not love persevering? Love which even death cannot overcome. Jesus knows that they will not grieve for long. Jesus knows this is about to get short-circuited, and yet he joins the community of those who grieve, of those who honor and make space for Martha and Mary, who accompany them into this new world that they have entered this world that does not contain their brother. In this moment when the platitudes might actually not be platitudes for once, Jesus doesn't say a word but weeps, which suggests that the characterization of grief as an act of those who lack faith might just be a human justification of discomfort rather than a biblical mandate. Because to ignore and refuse grief is to ignore and refuse the human condition the very necessary corollary to the commandment to love one another. What is grief, if not love persevering? For grief is not simply the domain of those who have experienced that physical death made so pungent in the story of Lazarus. It is not simply those who live beyond the moment when one heart has ceased to beat and one set of lungs has stopped breathing. Rather, grief is the normal response to loss in any form. But, oh, look, we have platitudes for those losses as well, right? It's all part of God's plan, people say. God never gives us more than we can handle. Suffering builds character and God only tests the strong, and here again, my absolute least favorite, everything happens for a reason. I feel like half of my ministry is working against all of those. But if we don't make room for the grief that follows an actual physical Lazarus death, the death of a human being, if we don't give the time and the space for people to bring their full selves, grief and all, into our communities as they learn new ways of life into which they have been thrown, if we don't make room for that grief, how much less room do we make for the grief of a broken relationship, of a hope destroyed, of a dream deferred, of a belief called into question? How often do we tear ourselves in half? We are 15 months now into a global pandemic, which has caused the actual literal physical deaths of over 600,000 Americans and millions globally, as well as causing as yet uncertain chronic illness in countless thousands more. 
I guarantee you God did not need that many more angels. But more than just that grief, we have lost connections, longed-for milestone celebrations, familiar settings. We have lost our innocence, our belief in our own invulnerability, our belief even in the goodness of of humanity and the importance of community. And it is clear that a lot of the reasons for all of these losses are very, very human and not at all divine. And as I watch us try to move on into a post-COVID world, even while people continue to get sick and die, I worry. I worry that our souls will be torn in half as we do not take the time to grieve. I worry that we will be fractured from within, leaving pieces of ourselves stuck in the trauma of these days. I worry that we will not find the healing that we profess to seek in open restaurants and longed for vacations, in our insistence upon living into joy and hope, even as our souls bear the burden of all that has been lost. I worry that we do not grieve. I worry that we leave aside this necessary element of what it means to be human. I worry that we have not learned For we have seen what can come when there is time for us to spend with our pain. When there is community with which to grieve, to express our shock and our denial and our anger and despair. We watched when people came out, as they did for Mary and Martha, weeping and holding each other after the deaths of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd. And we know what can happen when that grief is permitted to take its course when the grieving are not isolated but honored. And we catch a glimpse of what can yet be, what it could be like to move together into a new world, the uncertainty of a future marked by grief yet in which we are not alone. We know what can happen if we choose healing over platitudes. And we know how infrequently that is the choice we make. This may seem a terrifically odd sermon choice for this particular day in July. To discuss the need for grief on a day that many reserve for celebration. But I think about those who gathered together. Was it 245 years ago? My math isn't that good. I think about those who gathered together to sign a document that we probably don't read often enough. And I wonder if there wasn't grief among them that day. As I signed this huge form that would formally and irrevocably separate them from their origins. That would form a new identity, not only for them, but for an entire nation. That would set on its course an experiment for which they would be responsible. I wonder what the mood of that room really was as they put their signatures down and stepped forward together into an unknown future, all of them changed forever. And I wonder that we celebrate it all with fireworks and barbecues, rather than reflection and renewal. I wonder that we do not pause to grieve the ways that we have not lived into the promises written in that document, that we have not always been the people that our principles call us to be. There is no shame in admitting that, 
As we noted last week, we all fail. It's inevitable and there is grace. But while there is no shame in it, there may yet be grief. That we do not live in the post-racial society that we have longed to see. That we still have to work to ensure justice for all who seek refuge here. That we do not embody the ideals of equality which we have long professed. There may be grief when we remember that the Declaration only granted independence to white people living on this land, and even then mostly the white men. And there may be grief in the acknowledgement that no school teacher in New Hampshire can now say what I just said in that last sentence. And as with all grief, we cannot hide it under fireworks and parades and flags. We cannot distract ourselves from it with celebrations, even though it is hard and painful, even though it requires honesty and vulnerability that we are unaccustomed to giving, we must, all of us together, hold space, make room for the grief as well as the hope. It is only in honoring all of ourselves, as individuals and as members of one community, that we can step into our future whole and see the possibilities that still do lie before us. but we're not good at it. We don't know how to do it. We've never been taught what it is to make space for grief. Children's minister and pediatric grief therapist Stacy Schaefer provides some guidelines about how it is that we might hold space for those of us around for those around us who are grieving, which is spoiler alert, most of us, especially now. Don't compare she says. Each grief is unique, and this isn't a competition. Just because someone else's grief seems bigger doesn't mean yours isn't real. The stages of grief aren't linear. Martha started with denial and bargaining. Mary started with sorrow and anger. Sometimes we feel everything at once, and sometimes we wallow for days. It's all grief, and it's all valid. Except grief bursts. There's an image for this grieving process that is a huge ball inside a small box with a button on the inside. Every time the ball hits the button, our grief overflows. In the beginning, it's a huge ball, so that button gets hit every single moment, just about. And the ball gets smaller with time, but it keeps bouncing. And it still hits the button as it bounces around, maybe for years, maybe for decades afterwards. And that's okay. And that's normal. Just be honest. If you don't know what to say to someone who is grieving, say that you don't know what to say to someone who is grieving. Don't give the platitudes that make showing grief uncomfortable. Just sit. Be present. Say, I love you. But remember that it's not all words. Our bodies hold grief in ways that words sometimes can't express. If it helps to walk or work out or hit a punching bag or throw stones into a pond or just cry for hours, do it. There's no right way. Which brings us to the last one. Let go of how we've all been told we're supposed to grieve. Every time we love someone, it's different. You all knew that. And so every time we grieve... It's different. 
And every one of us is different. So figure out what works for you, even if it takes a little while. But mostly, in this grand experiment of learning how to grieve, how to hold space, how to be community together, be like Jesus. Sit with those who grieve. <clears throat> Allow yourself to live in empathy and compassion. For who among us has not grieved? We all know what it feels like. Meet the denial, the anger, the sorrow, all of the emotions of grief with compassion, even if you can't find the words. Be part of the community that will not isolate those who grieve, but who will allow them to be their whole selves with all of the messy feelings of longing for a simpler and more innocent time and still being aware that knowledge and love will change us forever. For the community that gathers in the messiness of grief, that does not demand that the grieving tear ourselves apart, does not demand that the comfort of the community be more important than the wholeness of the vulnerable and the grieving. The community that holds space for all that humanity might feel and need, that community is the kingdom of God on earth, in which we are free to be our full selves, hiding nothing. It is the community in which we find hope instead of platitudes, support instead of discomfort, wholeness instead of compound trauma. That community is the kingdom of God on earth, for it is a community of truth and compassion, of justice and mercy, of love and grace, embodied within the new worlds into which we tentatively step as we grow and change and grieve and love. The community that allows us to bring all of our pain, all of our joy, everything that grieving entails. That is the community that God has long dreamed for us. And it is the community in which we find that we cannot die. But we will, in fact, live into the promises of the resurrection right here on earth. Thanks be to God. Alleluia. Amen.